Welcome to the 149th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Joseph Jaynes, editor of the anthology Library 2020, Today's Leading Visionaries Describe Tomorrow's Library. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Joseph Jaynes. Joe is a professor at the University of Washington and teaches library and information science. He also writes a long, a long-running column for American Libraries Magazine, and Joe is the editor of a new essay collection, Library 2020. Joe, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, I'm glad you could join me. Um, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? How did you originally become interested in libraries, and what led you to pursue your career in library science? Well, you know, there's a long story with twists and turns and missed opportunities and being in the right place at the right time. But, the, you know, we, when you get right down to it, my mother was a librarian. And for so many of us, that seems to be the even though she uh, never had the degree, never pressured me. I mean, there was none of this sort of thing. But I, I think I think there is a genetic marker for librarianship. I sort of always have because there's so many of us. Um, it is, but, and there is the story about the twists and turns. And I started as a computer science major and lasted six weeks and was failing out of my first class. And the department secretary said, Oh, you should try the people over in the information studies school. We don't know what they do, but they seem really nice. And it's kind of similar to what we do. And I went over there and stayed for 10 years and got three degrees. So, um, there, there's just always been, uh, I think for me, there's always been an affinity for information. For information in all of its different forms, um, I originally trained to be a librarian and would have been very happy as uh, to be a librarian. Um, but the further I went in the sort of academic study, the more I got fascinated by, you know, what what forms information takes and how it evolves and what people do with it and how to find it and and um, and so that led me very naturally to a scholarly and teaching um, career in the information and library science world. Great. Well, earlier I mentioned the book Library 2020, which you edited. If someone listening hasn't heard about Library 2020 yet, how would you describe the book? And also, what, what was the impetus for you uh, to edit um, and, and, and put together the collection of essays? Well, it, it is just that. It's a collection of essays. And, and I think that's its real strength. There's a lot of um, there's been a lot in the library world and, and in the information world more broadly, but particularly in the library world, there's been a lot of, you know, what are we, what's the future going to be? What are we going to do? How are we going to do this? What are there still going to be libraries? What are they going to look like? Are there going to be books? What kind of services are we going to provide? What do people need? And, and not in a tail chasing, you know, chicken little, the sky is falling kind of way. Um, but over the years, this has kind of evolved into a, a, a really thoughtful, um, discussion with some urgency, and particularly after the um, after the economic downturn in 08, uh, increasing urgency because of funding challenges and so on. Um, uh, you know, a real sense of urgency about what what are these institutions for? So many of the you know assumptions and presuppositions about libraries seem to be turned on their heads. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people question what the value of a library is in a world where everything's on Google. And, and so I thought, well, you know, it'd be interesting to contribute to that discussion. But, but I, I, in, in wanting to contribute to that discussion, rather than write a book, which is a lot of work, 
um, let's let everybody else write a book, which is a whole lot less work, or at least so I thought when I got into this. Um, and a friend who's been a publisher in the library field for a long time said, hey, why don't, do you want to write a book about the future? Do you want to edit a book about the future? And I said, yes, I want to edit a book about the future. Um, but I wanted it to be somehow different. I wanted to have a, a different voice, and I wanted to have a different approach to this. So um, I, I asked as wide a swath of people as I could get, um, you know, people who are very well known in the library world and some who are yet to be well known, people who've been at it for a long time, people who are brand new, people who come from the industry, people who come from lots of different perspectives. And I asked them to write very short essays. Um, some of them are as short as three pages. I think the longest is seven or eight. Um, and I said, I don't care what you write. I don't care what you write about. I don't care whether it's happy or funny or grim or depressing or, or challenging or what it is. Um, just don't be boring. And the first sentence has to start with the library in 2020 will be fill in that blank and then do whatever else you want. And I think people, you know, approach that in, in interesting ways it, it, and, and the pieces are not that long. So you get this kind of you know, it's almost like a game, you know, how would you fill in the blank? And, and some people have asked this now, I've seen this in blog postings and tweets and so on, you know, how would you fill in this blank? Um, which I think is a, perhaps the even more important um, question is how do we all do that as, as citizens, as librarians, as information people, you know, the library in 2020 will be. Um, and it, it turned out to be more than just an interesting little gimmick. It turned out to give people a real springboard to explore lots of different ideas and lots of different potential futures from the very rosy and optimistic to the very grim and dystopic and everywhere in between. And, and that's, that's part of what I really love about it is that it's so many different perspectives and voices. Sure. Sure. So looking ahead to 2020, you, you mentioned earlier the, the funding issue. What, what, outside of that, what are the biggest issues facing libraries and librarians today? Is it that question that you, that you alluded to earlier that, that in the age of Google, what is the role of a, of a library and a librarian? You know, I heard that question a whole lot more four or five, three, four or five years ago than I do now. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the fact that libraries are thriving, um, beyond the several years when people were asking that question has kind of answered the question. Um, uh, all the data we see from all different kinds of libraries is that usage has gone up dramatically, uh, measured in any way you like, uh, number of feet that goes through the door, number of hits to the website, number of items that circulate. There's lots of different indicators that tell us that libraries are thriving and that individuals and communities are finding them really, really important. And there's been really good research that tell us what college students use uh, libraries for, what people use um, public access computing for in public libraries, what people are using resources that are now much more widely available in digital format as well as in print and so on, ebooks. I mean, there's lots of this, uh, lots of indicators that the library world is in, is in very good shape. I, I, the questions... I mean, you can't divorce this from the funding questions because that's so critical. But, sure. but in it, and and you know, manifest differently in university libraries and in public libraries or school libraries or or you know, corporate libraries, things like that. But uh, the, so the the ongoing questions I think are more along the lines of what the institution is for, what it's supposed to do, and when you build your 
institutional model, and when the institutional model of the people who use you and fund you is found is is you know so firmly engraved in a particular format or set of formats, you know the institution kind of grows around that. So we circulate books because if you and I both want to read Fifty Shades of Grey, which I don't know why we'd want to, but that's the one that comes to mind. Uh, and there's only one copy. We have to take turns. And so that's why, you know, items circulate. Well, you know, and we're still in an ebook world. They're still circulating digital copies of books, which I, I mean, I just think is ludicrous. Um, understandable, but kind of, we're going to look back on this in 20 years and think, oh, my God, you've got to be kidding me. But publishers can't get out of that mindset and distributors can't get out of that mindset and booksellers can't get out of that mindset and neither can librarians. So we're all in this together, even though I think the public is way out ahead of us on that one. So what is so, that? So let, let, I'm just curious. Let, let's talk about that for a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had a question um, yeah. written, written down about about kind of the ebook, the ebook uh, issue that librarians are dealing with. So so you said you think that that model is ludicrous, but but I wonder. Um, I'm just curious. I mean, coming from the author's perspective, mm. I mean, what what is the model that you would see? I mean, would there be would you know? Uh, and I'm wondering, you know, down to kind of the financial model in terms of a library, would they purchase X rights or, or, or what, what you're thinking? Well, about that? That's, that's now you're getting into it. And there's actually one of the, one of the essays that I, I mean, I love all the essays in the book, but one of the essays I love in the book, um, Cliff Lynch who's the director of the coalition for networked information really kind of pulls this apart and says, you know, we are moving the marketplace for cultural ideas is in the process of migrating from a sale model to a license model. Just overall. Uh, digital downloads of music, digital downloads of film, ebooks, scholarly journals in digital format. You know, the, all of those formats originally were analog, and now they're not. And when they become not analog, when they become digital or streaming or cloud-based or whatever, mm -hmm. um, there's nothing to buy. Right. You, know, you can buy a file and you can download a file. That's the iTunes model. But, you know, the Rhapsody or the Netflix model where you're just, you know, you're licensing the content, you're buying the right to look at it, but you're not buying right. the thing itself. That's a different way of thinking about the, the marketing and sale of cultural objects. And, and, there, and, there, and there, you know, obviously there have been rumors uh, within the industry that, that, you know, Amazon has been thinking about the idea or contemplating or discussing with publishers, the idea of a, of a Netflix type model for, for books, which is what you're describing. Um, oh, yeah. and, 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 and I think you're right. I think it's, I think it's probably inevitable. Oh, sure. Um, sure. Now, but you know, the, the part, so I don't think eBooks are ludicrous. I don't think, mm -hmm. you know, but the, the, the circulation model, you know, if there's, if there's one, digital file, um, why can't we both read it at the same time? You know, why can't we both access it or download it or whatever at the same time? And that's an accounting problem. That's not a intellectual problem. That's not a, you know, it's not like if I'm reading a file, you can't read it too. Right. You know, as long as, I mean, so the, we just have, but you know, publishers up until the last, very recently, there have been many, a number of major publishers who simply will not make their digital works available to libraries. And it's only in the last few months that that started to crack open a little bit. I mean, we've had complete embargoes by several major publishers that they simply will not license or loan or sell ebooks to public libraries 
And, and if they do, they'll sell an ebook to a public library at like 10 times the list price, as opposed to in print that they, we get a discount. You know, libraries get discounted rates on print books, right. but, you know, multiples of 10, because the publishing world is petrified, terrified that they're going to become the recording industry. Right. And, right. and, you know, people are going to sell one copy of a book and then we all share it and nobody ever makes any money. Um, I, uh, you know, which is not a ridiculous thing for them to be worried about. But that doesn't mean that the library world is out to put the publishing world out of business. Quite the reverse. We love publishers, especially when they're nice to us. Um, and we actually are a boon to sales. There's more than a little evidence that public libraries are one of the larger mover of books in all formats. And the publishing industry just cannot yet. I mean, they are starting. And, and one thing that I think is very promising here is that many publishers have been engaged with the American Library Association, try to work together to figure out how to do this so that everybody wins. So that publishers make money, that authors get compensated. I'm an author, too. I'm, I'm plugging a book right as we speak. And I want, I want a nice royalty check in a few months when the first, you know, the first statement comes out. Don't get me wrong. But I also want to be read, um, sure, and I sure. and and um, and I don't want. I mean, mercifully, I'm with a publisher who doesn't think this way. But I would hate the I would the idea that I would have a publisher who wouldn't make my works available to libraries. I mean, that would kill me. Right. And right. there's authors who've written things in the New York Times that are like libraries are evil and they're trying to put us out of business. <laughs> and what a load of crap. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, of all things, we've been supporting you. We've been plugging your books. We got Nancy freaking Pearl out there every single day, you know, plugging books. And this is the thanks we get. So <laughs> thanks a ton, you know. So there's more than a few librarians that are kind of cranky about that. Prison sure, companies. Sure, sure. Right. But so, this whole marketplace is just shifting and it's happening really fast. And I don't think anybody quite knows where it's all going to end up. And that leads to a lot of these questions about what's a library going to be. Sure, sure. Um, so... And, and I think that's I I think you covered it well, and I I think you know as we stand today, there's really no answering that except to say that you know, and I think you'd probably agree that eventually the licensing model, as you mentioned in terms of digital, and you mentioned the Pandora or Spotify, that yeah. that's eventually going to to happen to books. Um, I think yeah. the, oh, it's in the I think the I think the accounting issue is a separate issue, and it will be resolved hopefully yes. in a way that publishers are happy and authors are happy. But, but I agree that I think that the, the, the landscape will eventually look like, you know, um, what you described. So I just wanted to go back for a moment to the funding issue, um, yeah. you know, because obviously we're, we're, you know, currently in a, in a, um, in America specifically in a, in a political situation that's very rancorous and, and um, you know, uh, not a lot of common ground, um, and, and I know that there, you know, on one side, there are people who who advocate for, you know, tax cuts that even include shuttering libraries. I'm just curious, do you think that, you know, as you think about this, I mean, do you think that most Americans will will, you know, in terms of the 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 choices they make at the ballot box will will protect library funding um, and realize the, the the value of libraries to their communities and neighborhoods? Um. The one of the rare shafts of bright light out of the last few years is is the fact that most communities have done exactly what you just said. Um, uh, it wasn't too long after the collapse in 08 that 
you know, public budgets started getting hit. And for that matter, college and university budgets and a variety of other things as well. And, you know, you, you start to ask really hard questions about things like sanitation and fire departments and police departments and public health. And, you know, public libraries are right in the middle of all of that. And, and you know, as part of the, as part of the public good, um, you know, does the next $100,000 go to the school or does it go to the library? Or does it go to the parks department or does it go to the sanitation workers? Because it's only going to go in one place. Um, and, and there were lots of libraries and lots of systems who, you know, let's say in, in early, middle, late 2009, we're in a lot of trouble. And we heard stories about we're going to close branches, we're going to close hours, we're going to, we're going to lay people off, we're going to close entire systems, we're going to close entire libraries. And some of that did happen. But more often than not, what happened in those places is that people in those communities rose up and said no. You are not going to close our libraries. You are not going to reduce our hours. You are not going to lay our people off, and we are going to support it. And if and, and we see we saw that in ballot initiatives in LA County, where they fund they voted to to designate a particular percentage of the county budget to the LA County Library, which I think is a terrible way to do public budgeting, but it benefits libraries, so yay. Um, uh, and, and and ballot measures and levies and uh, other kinds of funding mechanisms and going to city council meetings and going to county council meetings and just beating the drum and saying, look, libraries are just too important. They're too central. They're one of the few. They're one of the few public goods. They're one of the few things that, you know, I mean, we have our moments of controversy and should we have Harry Potter books and should we carry Fifty Shades of Grey and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, but by and large, people love libraries. And, you know, if you, every once in a while you see a newspaper article or something online and you, you get the trollers at the bottom who are like, what do I need a library for? Google, Amazon. And they tend to get shouted down by normal, rational people who say, you know, have you been in a library in the last 30 years? Have you seen the fact that you can't get a chair? Have you been to a class there? Have you gotten help on your taxes there? Have you looked for? Have you seen people looking for work and health information and education information? Have you talked to a librarian? Have you seen the early story hours? There's all this research coming out now that that reading to children in the first 18 months can vastly improve their vocabularies when they get to school. And that's what story hour is. I mean, it's puppets and whatever, but it's also, it's programming kids for the next, for the rest of their lives. Sure. To sure. be readers and thinkers. And so much of that happens in the public library. And so that's in the mix of all of this conversation about the future of what the institution is going to be. But, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about that is that, you know, so, some of this discussion is at this 30,000 foot level, you know, what is the future of the library and what's going to happen to the library or libraries in general? And the, the vast majority of people have experience with one library and it's the only one they care about. It's the one down the street. It's the one across town. You know, I have a couple because I'm a university faculty member. So I have a university library and a public library. But, you know, nobody, the, the, the library you care about, the future of the library you care about is the one down the street. And, and that's where the rubber meets the road. And the, the, the news there has been pretty good, by and large. You know, you read the things after, the, after elections, and, you know, we get pretty substantial margins, um, especially in communities where the libraries have done a really good job of, 
telling the story and, and rallying advocacy, which um, is an important thing from our perspective, but for communities' perspectives as well, you know, we're a critical, vital piece of the infrastructure. That's great. That's great. So, so, so I notice you're the founding director of the Internet Public Library. What What is the Internet Public Library for those who don't know? Oh, my gosh. Well, so uh, take the Wayback Machine. No offense to the Internet Archive Project. Um, uh, take the Wayback Machine to 1995. And I was uh, teaching at the University of Michigan at the time and was teaching a graduate seminar and thought, you know, hey, let's what, what do you think? This is 1995, so Mosaic had just come out. You know, <laughs> gophers yeah. were still a little bit cool in 1995. Nobody knows what a gopher is anymore. Um, uh, we built gophers. Um, and for those of you who don't know what a gopher is, look it up. It's worth knowing. Um, what do you think the Internet Public Library would be? You know, what would it mean to, to the Internet world for, for librarian, you know, what can librarianship share with the internet and what can librarianship learn from the internet? Um, and so, God love them, they built it in 10 weeks, uh, the first globally available library reference service that's still running, and I still use it in my classes as a way to, for my students to learn how to do, uh, how to do library work. Um, they maintain collections. They, uh, they, uh, it, it, it was a project to see how um, how librarianship would work in that environment and what the environment would would mean for librarianship and like so many projects like that you know things that we thought about in 95 96 are just now kind of coming to fruition um, and we had some wacky crazy ideas that just didn't work um, the only thing I insisted on that they do I didn't really care what they did so long as it was great the only thing I insisted on was a story hour so they had they built a story hour. You know, it was one of the very first examples of streaming audio on the internet. We had to install an audio server at the last minute, um, so that there could be narration over little um, scanned images of baked bread dough that had been made into puppets um, to tell the Molly Whoopi story, which is an old English folktale. That's great. Um, That's great. It's incredible work. It still exists at IBL.org. Um, it's migrated and moved and morphed and all kinds of stuff. But uh, over 18 years later, um, it's still alive, which is kind of remarkable. And, and it now is housed at Drexel University, and they've done a lovely job of maintaining it and supporting it. It's supported by a lot of the information schools around the world who use it as a teaching tool. And um, it's just a remarkable thing that, that you know, a, a simple little idea like that, that people worked really hard on um, and lots of people have worked really hard on over the years um, has, has continued. That's, that's, great. that's great. So uh, I, I know we've talked about um, a lot of this, but I was just curious. I know that you have an essay in the book. Mm -hmm. um, what is your what is your own personal vision of the library in 2020? Um, yeah, I I, uh, I got the last word, which is what you get if you're the editor of a book like this. And so I asked everybody else to fill in the blank. You know, the library in 2020 will be blank. Um, and I my answer was the library in 2020 will be more than likely um, because I I'm very optimistic. Uh, especially after the last several years of, of enduring a period of a lot of challenge and threat and question to the idea of the library um, and the purpose and relevance and role of the library. Um, but, but I think what it's going to be is going to be in some ways very similar to what we see today and in some ways very different. It, it certainly cannot be the same 
you know, the same institution in every regard. That's ridiculous to imagine. Um, but it can't be so completely foreign that people don't accept it as a library um, and that the people who work there don't recognize it that way. I mean, it's just these things don't happen. So it, it, it's going to be a, um, you know, a, 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 in some way it's going to inherit um, some of the aspects of, of what libraries have always been. But to me, the question is, you know, as we migrate from a, a world of information scarcity where where we had to have tactics like interlibrary loan um, to be able to, to make up for the fact that, that information items were scarce. Now we have a situation where information objects are abundant. And access to many objects is not the issue. Um, and we also have this real uh, kind of dual situation where you have more and more of the kind of traditional media uh, book publishing, scholarly journal publishing, music, film, television networks, um, television stations, radio stations, lots of media and information outlets are being consolidated in fewer and fewer hands. And that, to me, feels like a clenching fist. Um, and on the other hand, you have podcasts like this one and um, uh, YouTube and blogs and Twitter and you know, all ways for people to write and sing and share and draw and film that don't require any sort of distribution mechanism at all. They just wind up on iTunes or YouTube or, uh, you know, Twitter or you name it. And that to me seems like an opening hand. So you have more and more of what we always thought of as high quality information in fewer and fewer hands. And that's going to be tougher and harder and more expensive to get at. And then there's going to be all this stuff that's free and easy to get at. And what, what people need on the one hand is somebody to pay for the stuff that we always thought was really good, but they need help sorting through all the crap that's freely available. So the challenge for libraries is no longer providing access. We, had, we were the mechanism by which people could get access to things they couldn't get any other way. Well, that's not the deal anymore. It is the deal for some things, but now the deal is too much access. And it's not a, in a world when there's a lot of access, it's not a great time to be a middleman, which explains what has happened to record stores and newsstands and travel agents. This is really not necessary anymore. Right. right. But, but the ones that have survived have figured out what kind of special services they can provide or what they can do to support their community or how they appeal to niche markets. And I think increasingly that's what libraries are going to have to do is to think about service and niche and specialization and focus on community that will really help to um, give them, uh, you know, th that will draw people to them in a world where you can Google almost anything and find any song on iTunes or YouTube or find any, you know, search something on Twitter or whatever. It's so easy to find stuff that we can't just be about providing access to other people's stuff. And so the library of 2020 and beyond will figure that out. We'll have a much better response, a much more professional, reasoned response to what do I do now? 
Right. And, and, and I think that leads into what you were what you were saying earlier in terms of uh, it sounded to me like you were almost talking about curation of this um, consumer generated media of podcasts and videos. Um, and I know that cur- curation is a kind of a buzzword these days. What, what, what's, what's your thought about that? Because it sounded to me like that's what you were describing. Well, I, I think that, too. I, I know too many archivists to use the word or and museum folks to use the word curation in an offhand way because I'll hear about it if I do. Okay. Um, actual curation that's done by, like, curators who know what they're doing as opposed to arranging things on a shelf, which appears to qualify as curation today. Right, Sorry right. if that sounds cranky. Um, uh, actual curation, actual thought and, and, and selection and collection and evaluation and organization and so on is, is very important. And, and I think that's a piece of this is, I mean, we know a lot about metadata. We know a lot about structure and metadata. We know a lot about organization. We know a lot about evaluation of materials. We know a lot about provenance and authority and accuracy and truthfulness and, you know, old-fashioned concepts like that, um, which are still valid and valued, but but not all the time. You know, there's a lot of times where I just go on Google and find something or look at Wikipedia and find something, and I'm, you know, I'm perfectly content with that. Um, but when it matters, then I want something a little deeper. I want something a little better. I want something a little more authentic and authoritative, and that's when I turn to the kinds of sources that do that. My lawnmower died the other day. And rather than just go and buy a lawnmower, I went to Consumer Reports through my public library. And I found a much better, I hope, (laughs) lawnmower that will help to finish mowing the backyard, which is now half done and has been for several days. Um, So that was that. that, Right. If I'm going to put down a couple hundred bucks for a lawnmower, I want a good lawnmower. And who do I who do I trust to tell me what a good lawnmower is? Well, Consumer Reports. Great. That's an example of of. being able to, uh, you know, in circumstances where it matters, in circumstances where the stakes are high enough, to be able to say, all right, it matters enough, I want, I want better stuff, I want quality stuff, I want the good stuff. Um, and that's something that somebody has actually paid attention to or touched or evaluated or organized, and that's going to make it more valuable to me. So, uh, you know, to me, that's all of a piece, is all of these functions that libraries have traditionally undertaken you know, understanding their community and, and helping to collect and select items for that community, evaluate them, organize them, make them useful, help people to use them, maintain them, that kind of stuff. All of those functions work well in both of these worlds, you know, in both the traditional media landscape and also what is emerging. But they manifest differently and people think about them differently. And not everybody thinks about libraries in this sort of open hand kind of world. And I think that's a real avenue for us um, to uh, to engage our communities in yet another way, and and you know there are other possibilities, but I think that's that's a, a way certainly worth um, exploring and and potentially you know making the most of. That's that's great. That's great. So um, I want to ask you to pick a favorite of the essays in in Library Twenty Twenty, but I, I am curious: were were there essays in the book that when you received them and read them? that surprised you or made you think about the future of libraries in a way that you maybe had not thought about them before? Well, of course the pat answer is that they all did, you know, like, <laughs> what's your favorite child? What's your favorite? You know, yeah, I'm not going to answer that. Um, uh, but I, you know, each in their own way, there are several that kind of stick. And, you know, I find, especially since I've been talking about this a bit and, and, 
you know, people have been asking me questions about it. I, I come back to, you know, I come back to some and I think, oh, wow, you know, I hadn't thought about that. Um, there, there are a few that, that I think particularly stick. Um, uh, and just some of the phrases and ideas, um, you know, Sarah Houghton, who's the director of the San Rafael Public Library in California, says, uh, you know, that technology is going to be an increasingly important thing for libraries and that people with technological facility are going to make great leaders because it's the same skill set. Well, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. I never thought about that before. And so that was that one kind of stood me back. Um, Kristen Fronticero, who's a faculty member at Michigan, talked a lot about maker spaces and how, you know, the idea of, of, of maker spaces and so on in public libraries can be really powerful. Um, the first essay in the piece is The Annoyed Librarian, uh, who's been writing an anonymous column in Library Journal and pissing people off for several years. And I had, I have no idea who it is, because um, we all did it anonymously, but um, I believe it's a she um, wrote a piece that says, you know, the library of the future is going to be the library of the past, except it's not going to have any books or music or movies. Um, and it's much the same sort of argument about, you know, um, uh, those, those formats are going to evolve away from us, and so what are we going to do? Um, James Rosenzweig, who's a, a librarian at a, a Northern Illinois University and a former student, um, wrote a really great piece uh, with an extended metaphor about information base camps, you know, where, where librarians can help people who are out in the information wild, you know, not in our own collections, not in our own, um, you know, resources, but can help people to, you know, to, to make their way in, a, in an increasingly complex and sometimes um, unfriendly information landscape. That's a beautiful piece. Um, uh, Elizabeth Jones, who's my doctoral student, as long as I'm bragging about people, wrote a great piece about digitization, book digitization, like the Google Books Project and how that's going to affect the way people think about information. Um, Several really, really nice essays about community um, and place, the value of place. Um, Bill Potasek, who's the head of the King County Library System here, says, you know, the library is going to be more about, more about helping people to do things than making them come to us to do them. Um, but place is still really important. Um, and and I, ended the essay, I ended the book with um, Dan Shudnoff, who's at George Washington University, another former student from Michigan. Um, who um, wrote a piece that, that is kind of looking backward, that sort of, you know, some people took the 2020 thing very literally and used it as a way to look back. And he said, you know, if you look back at 2012, 2013, look at all these missed opportunities. Look at these things we didn't do. And, you know, look at where we are now. And this didn't happen and that didn't happen. And we didn't do this and we didn't do this. And it's actually very depressing. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. And then the last couple paragraphs, he says, so we got to fight. We got to fight for our users. We got to fight for our communities. We got to fight for our rights to continue to engage with information. We got to fight for intellectual freedom. We got to fight because that's what librarians do. Whoa! You know, you can't ask for much more than that. So there, there's a real, you know, what I tried to do was to get a real mixture, a real variety, a real. Um, uh, you know, I didn't want a single voice. I didn't want a single perspective. I didn't want a single anything. And, and I think I succeeded, um, uh, uh, largely because of the, you know, people who were very gracious and willing to, uh, willing to participate. Um, you know, I have a couple of former presidents of ALA, um, American Library Association. Um, I have a 
you know, uh, somebody who runs a, a, a suburban Chicago, suburban Chicago public library system. And she talks about things like cleaning the bathroom and dealing with gang kids, you know, and that's public librarianship, especially suburban, you know, major suburban public library systems is you got to worry about gang kids and people barfing in the bathroom. And that's, and where are the fire extinguishers and am I in compliance? And that stuff is not going to go away in this, you know, high tech, shiny world of 2020. People are still going to barf in the bathroom and you're still going to have to worry about the fire extinguishers and the gang kids. Um, and, and, and everywhere, you know, so all the way from that to, you know, the future of cultural objects, um, and everywhere in between. And that's the library world every single day is uh, all of those and everything besides. Great. Great. Well, as we wrap up, I, it's my understanding that you have a podcast as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I do. Um, uh, so in the way that I have with things like the Internet Public Library, these crazy things like ideas come to me and then, hey, look, I made a podcast. Um, so I started about a year ago with a student who worked with me as a research project. It's called Documents That Change the World, available on iTunes. If you just search for that phrase in Google or in iTunes, it will come right up um, in the process of building a web presence for it as well. And it's, um, as you may have figured out, I'm a storyteller by nature. Um, and so I'm up to about 20 episodes now of, you know, documents, not always the ones that are obvious, not always, I haven't done, I'm not going to do Magna Carta and Declaration of Independence. Those are easy. Um, you know, I did the pamphlet that uh, was written right before the French Revolution that kind of set the tone for how the, how the French, um, political system was going to go after that. I did the, uh, the Obama birth certificate. I did the uh, quotations of Chairman Mao. Um, I just did the letter that Albert Einstein wrote to Franklin Roosevelt encouraging him to think about atomic bombs. Um, I did the Riot Act. Um, uh, and the one that seems to, uh, the, the, the two that seem to really most intrigue people is the cholera map, the 1854 cholera map that Dr. John Snow uh, compiled, which is a great 19th century version of big data taking lots of different data sources and collapsing them into an easy-to-understand map that helped people to know uh, which, where, where the contaminated water pump was in London and why it mattered where you get, went to get your water, whether you lived or died. Um, and the other one I did was the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, um, which was the women's suffrage in 1920. Um, but it, it led me to think about, you know, where, where is the Constitution if you ask people this, they'll say, oh, it's in the rotunda of the National Archives. Well, yeah, that's true. That's where the original Constitution is, and that's where the Bill of Rights is. But where's the rest of it? And, and where is the Constitution, the whole thing, you know, the intact, authentic version? Uh, and the answer is that there isn't one. There is not an intact, authoritative, singular Constitution. It just is. It's just a collection of all the parts. Uh, it's not kept in the Supreme Court. It's not kept in the White House. It's not kept in Congress. There's lots of different archival boxes in the National Archives that keep all the bits and pieces, but they don't like paste it in. It's not, you know, there's no single physical object that is the Constitution. And this kind of disturbs people, you know, that this thing that, you know, underlies every, every fabric of, of our daily life um, kind of isn't there. It is, but it's the fact that we don't ever worry about that 
um, tells us something about the, the power of those words and how they work. Um, so I'm just having a ball doing this, um, uh, and, and people seem to like it, and uh, it's, it keeps me off the streets, and it's, uh, and it's just a ton of fun. That's great. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Joseph Jaynes, editor of Library 2020. The essay collection about the future of libraries is available in bookstores now, so definitely grab a copy. And Joe, thanks for doing this interview. Well, thank you so much. This has been a great pleasure. Great. great. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com.